0: There's something that it takes us quite a while to figure out in life. And it might sound cliche, but it's said a lot because it's true. It takes us so long to figure out that, like, really, it is all about Jesus. We're taught from a very early age that we're supposed to be looking out for number one, and it's confusing because we get the idea that we're number one, we don't know who the real number one is. We, we, we end up trying to, like, save our life, and all the while it just starts to slip away. We keep trying to save ourselves, and the more we try, the deeper the hole we dig for ourselves. And I'm sure we've all seen them as you're driving over to Lahaina. You start heading over that way. You pass Ukumehame just before Oluwalu, and there's that beautiful stretch of beach, and you always have the people that have you know, just got their rental cars. They're in their little convertible and they want to pull over and take a picture of themselves up against the beach. And so they pull off the road and they get there in the sand in their little convertible. And uh, suddenly they realize they're stuck. And if you're a tourist and you're stuck in sand in a little convertible, you know what you do? You guess it. <laughs> well, at least that's what it seems like they do because I see them all the time. Like the car is buried bottomed out because the more gas they give it the deeper the hole i'll just gas it some more because you just keep he truly can rescue this morning as we start into john chapter 4 we see jesus as the great soul winner we saw him with nathaniel in john chapter 1 and he was speaking those words that just kind of went past all of the external stuff he spoke right to nathaniel's heart we saw him with nicodemus as well just skillfully guiding the conversation as Nicodemus was prone to focus on the natural and he kept bringing him back to the spiritual realities of being born again. Eventually, we're going to see Jesus there at the end of his earthly ministry in his dying breath, reaching out to the thief that's next to him on the cross. Jesus throughout his life and even unto this day is busy bringing sinners to himself. He genuinely cared and he genuinely cares for those who are out of the way. Those who are lost, those who have fallen short, and he is willing to reach out to anyone. The story that we see here in John chapter 4 is no exception to that. We see Jesus what he does best, <clears throat> doing what he does best, bringing sinners to salvation. But that's not all we see here in John chapter 4. What we see is we see Jesus crossing borders. We see him crossing barriers to bring the gospel to people. He crosses over into Samaria. He crosses into a place where people hated, they were hated and they were rejected by the Jews. He reaches out to a woman who was viewed as a very low and unimportant Um, status within that society, but so important and so precious to him. We see her as a moral outcast, and yet Jesus by no means was casting her out. John gives us the background, the setting of this encounter, here in the first six verses of chapter four. uh, Let's look at it together. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard, that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The therefore that we see in verse 1 connects us with what we saw back in John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. That's connecting to the fact that, remember, as he was there and his disciples, that people started to come to Jesus. They started coming to to Jesus's little ministry that was there and to the point to where more people came to Jesus and to his disciples to be ministered to. More people came there to be baptized. And John's disciples got jealous. They came back to John saying, hey, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more than we are. And John, in his wisdom and in his humility, he stated so beautifully that truth that I wish we would all understand better, that he must increase and I must decrease. That in life, if there is a growing humility, a growing decreasing of myself so that Christ may be magnified, that he may be glorified in my life, that's where I'm going to truly find what living is all about. John was gladly in that place, but somehow now word had gotten back to the Pharisees of Jesus' success there in Judea. And now somehow word has gotten back to Jesus that word had gotten back to the Pharisees that word was spreading about what Jesus was doing. What they had heard was that Jesus had baptized more disciples than John. Now, that would be driving them nuts because they didn't like what John was doing. Remember, what was John doing? He was out in the wilderness, out in the countryside, outside of Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from the priesthood, away from the sacrifices and all the ceremonies, away from all of that out there in the river calling people to get right with God right then and there, right on the spot, confess their sins, and come out into the water and be baptized, publicly repenting in front of all of their their peers, all their family, and all their friends. The Pharisees hated that because it was calling people to a relationship with God right there on the spot, and it was claiming that, You don't need the Pharisees. You don't need the whole system that's set up over there to get right with God. You just need to turn your heart and mind to the Lord right now and get right with him. And They hated that because it meant that, well, like what John was willing to say, I must decrease, he must increase. They didn't want that. They wanted to be magnified. I want to increase so that everybody feels like they need me. If they ever want to get to know the Lord. That was the Pharisees' attitude. And now to hear that it's not just John and his group that are calling people to get right with God, right there on the spot, apart from the temple, apart from the priesthood, apart from Jerusalem... Now Jesus and his disciples are doing the same thing and that group is gaining more traction than John's group. Now there's two groups. Oh, that was just that was just throwing them over the top. Well, Jesus hears about it and he's like, "I don't need to fight with these guys. I don't need to sit here and, you know, demand that I need to baptize." So, what does he do? It says that he heads back north towards Galilee. Now on your way to Galilee from Judea, there's something in between. Big old chunk of land known as Samaria. And there in Samaria are a people group known as the Samaritans. And the Jews hate the Samaritans. So they hate the Jesus and John are baptizing, and then they hate the Samaritan. I mean, these guys, they just hate everything, right? Now, normally, if a Jew had to go from Jerusalem to Galilee, they'd go around. Here's a little map. Up here, you have, like, the Sea of Galilee, you know, so many things, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Tiberias, got Nazareth over here. You know all the names of those cities. Jesus did so much of his ministry up there in the north, up in the countryside. All the way down here, you got the Jordan River. And then here's Jerusalem. This whole area right here is called Judea. So he's going, they're baptizing in the Jordan and going to go from Judea to Galilee and there's this thing in the middle, Samaria. Most of the time, people are like, I am not going through Samaria. It would be way easier to go through Samaria. But no, I'm going out of my way so that I don't have to deal with those people. It's amazing. It's a land that has so much history. The the Jews' history. So many events where God built them as a people, as a nation, where God showed himself faithful to them. But because of their hatred towards the people that lived there, they stayed away. I mean, it tells us here in the first six verses that Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well that he gave to Joseph is there. But though Jacob's well was there, though their history was there, you know what wasn't there? Jews weren't there. They stayed away. And there is where Jesus meets this woman. Look with me in verses 7 through 10. It says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask to drink from me a Samaritan Woman, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, or answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus just leaps over barriers, and this woman knows he's doing it, and it's blowing her mind. These, w- these barriers that separated him from this woman. First of all, he's a rabbi. Now, according to the, 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 the Jewish rabbinical law in that day, rabbis were instructed to never speak to women in public. Not even their own wives or sisters. Like, that's just something that rabbis didn't do. In fact, rabbinical law, it said that it was better to burn the law than to, get it, to give it to a woman. And how's that for making a person feel special? Hey, brother, I don't care if you're my sister. I can't talk to you in public. Can you just read me the Bible? No, I'd rather burn it. I mean, what a loving group of people these guys were, right? Hmm. In that culture, women were regarded as completely unable to understand these complicated subjects like theology. So you might as well be throwing your pearls to swine. And she brings that up. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? If it was just a woman thing, like that was a big deal. Now there's that other thing though, a Samaritan. So the story of the Samaritans is 750 years earlier. 750 years earlier, Isaiah had been prophesying about the idolatry of Israel. Israel had, at this point, the nation had split into two nations. It was Judah there in the southern um, tribes, uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin there at Jerusalem. And then above that was the northern kingdom known as Israel. And that was like the 10 other tribes. Now, with those guys, <clears throat> Israel, Isaiah had been prophesying because they were turned into idols. They were worshiping idols on every mountaintop and every like, little grove of trees. Everywhere they could worship idols, they would worship idols. And God promised them that judgment was coming. Well, they just thought, oh, these, these prophets, they're just heavy-handed. Let's kill them. And that's how they would deal with the prophets that were warning them of the coming judgment. Well... Sure enough, according to the prophecies, the Assyrians, they came in and they conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. And they were brutal, these guys. Like they would come in and they would conquer a territory. And if they didn't kill you in battle, they would take you as a prisoner of war. They wouldn't leave you. And they would string their prisoners up like fish on a stringer where they would ram a spike under the chin and then out the mouth and then into the next one, under the chin, out the mouth, under the chin. And that way like you are connected to the chain by your jaw. And they would just haul you through the desert, haul you to another place that they had conquered, that they had already emptied out. And they would say, all right, let's leave 30 of them here. And they'd march on, all right, let's leave another 20 here. And they would just disperse, scatter the people. Now, why would they do that? Because they wanted to erase their history, erase their culture and if they can erase their history and their culture, they can erase their identity. These people would forget who they were because they don't remember where they come from. And in doing so, they can erase that entire um, way of life. Like, uh, I want you to know something. Like, your history will always be under attack by people who want to control you. So it's really important to know your history. I just, I just want to say that as a little side note. It, that you know your history because right now, people who want to control you will always try to reinterpret or reinvent history. It's just the way that it always happens. That's why I love that old African proverb that until the lions have their own historians, the tale of the hunter will always be glorified. Um, you, got, you got to know your history, okay? Because the stories that you're told aren't always the, the historical ones. Um, anyway, so what did they do? They hauled all the Jews, all the Israelites, out of the land. And then they hauled all of their other captive people from other places. And they put them into the land that they just emptied out. We find a story in 2 Kings 17, through 24. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, uh, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, And placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. Now, from that, there's new people now in a new land. They don't know the ways of that land, and it's this obscure little story where it says that the Lord sent lions among the people, and the lions started to devour the people. So the king of Assyria was like, I know what's happening. It's because the people that are living there, they don't know the customs of the God of that land. So he came up with a solution. He said in 2 Kings 17, 27 through 29, the king of Assyria commanded saying, send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there. Let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land then one of the priests, whom they had carried away from Samaria, came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. Uh, it got to a point where, as it describes in verse 40 and 41, However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also, their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. So when the Jews thought of the Samaritans, they thought of them as fake Jews that were like smuggled in, And then taught a mixed religion that was promoted by the Assyrians. This mixed religion, it continued for, you know, all the way up until New Testament times. And now you understand the Samaritans of the New Testament. Even while they worshiped their false gods, though, they had a knowledge of God, they feared the Lord but they continued to serve their idols. They continued in their their practices of their sin. They were regarded by the Jews as reprobates. They were hated by the Jews even more than Gentiles because, well, of how the, the mixture and the confusion that they created. And this is why this Samaritan woman was so surprised when Jesus addressed her. Okay, you're a Jew, You're talking to me, a Samaritan woman. And notice how Jesus treats her. It's as if he's like reading her heart and speaking right into her life. And he's leading her to discover like who she actually is, where she actually is at, and what she actually needs. Didn't God do do that to Adam? when he brought Adam to the garden and, and brought all the animals to name and he like, he brought Adam to a place of discovery that he was alone. God will bring you to this place of like where your eyes are open, where you begin to understand the seriousness of your situation. But he's like speaking to her heart. Interestingly, that there's another well that was actually inside the village. This well is about a half a mile outside of town. Interesting that she wouldn't go to the well that's in her own town. She would go to that well outside of town. It makes you wonder why. Why would you just go to the one that's in your town? Why would you go the long way to the one that's like less convenient, the one that's outside of town? And and from that, I, I almost speculate like, we're about to find out this woman, she was probably viewed as a moral outcast by the Samaritans. So when you're, when you're a Jew and you look at Samaritans, you go, those guys are bad. And then you're a Samaritan and you're looking at another Samaritan and you're like, that one's really bad. Like she's bad, bad, bad in the eyes of the world but she's still precious in the eyes of Jesus. And remember, Jesus himself said in Matthew 9:13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's this thirsty woman. It was her thirst that brought her to that well. She came to draw water. And... Uh, he says to her these remarkable words. He says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The gift of God here is the Holy Spirit. Living water. And although he's speaking figuratively She takes him literally, and it's going to take her a little while to understand what it is that he's talking about. So with that, verse 11 and 12, then the woman said, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. "'Where then do you get that living water? "'Are you greater than our father Jacob, "'who gave us the well and drank from it himself "'as well as his sons and his livestock?' She's confused by what Jesus is saying to her. She responds, look, you have nothing to draw with. You have no bucket, you have no rope, and the well is deep. It's recorded that this well is estimated to be about 60 feet deep. You need a long rope to be able to pull water up out of that. 60 feet down to get to the water. If you don't have a rope and you don't have a bucket, you ain't getting water. And yet when Jesus says living water, now that's different. Living water speaks of running water. When they would call a well a a well of living water, it would be describing an artesian well. A well that is pressurized on its own and the water flows out by itself. Like you don't need to pump that water. You don't need to draw that water. That water is doing all the work. It's just coming at you. And so when this subject of living water comes up, she begins to suspect that she's talking to someone different than the rest of people that she's used to encountering. And so she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, wait a minute. Where did the Samaritans come from? They came from Babylon. They they came from like all of these faraway places. They didn't come from Israel. Jacob is the patriarch of the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes who have direct genealogical descent to Israel. And now here's a Samaritan woman who, according to their history, there is no genealogical connection. And yet now she's claiming that she has a genealogical genetic connection to Jacob. It's pretty amazing. Again, back to history and how important it is. Like, here's a people that have been, over the last 700 years, led to believe that they came from a people group that they didn't even come from. I remember this happened. Um, there's, a, there's a particular religion that was invented around the like, late 1800s. And, uh, and, and they had claimed that the people of South America were voyagers that came from Israel, particularly by a guy like under the leadership of a guy named Jared. And they ended up in South America on these boats to escape fighting and persecution that were down there. So the people of this religion were there in South America, and they were being taught by these religious leaders, genetically, you're, you're Jewish, you're Israeli, and then they started being able to do the DNA stuff. And suddenly they realize, uh, I'm more Asian than I am Israeli. Like, what do you, we've been lied to. But for a long time, they were taught this story. Ooh, wow. And, uh, but then they found out it was all a lie. Here's this woman that her little group had been lying to her for 700 years, teaching her something about where she came from. And it's not where she came from at all. But nonetheless, are you greater than Jacob? And so Jesus explains to her, he doesn't even get into that. He's like, You think you're genetically connected to me? Not a chance, woman! You don't need to have that argument. Not when you're trying to save someone's soul. It's amazing, like, the genetic arguments that we get into and all the other side issues when we're trying to reach somebody's soul. Jesus explains in verse 13 through 18. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've well said I have no husband. For you have you've had 5 husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So first of all what Jesus says to her is like I'm not talking about the water from this well. You drink that water you're going to thirst again. She knew what he meant. She'd been going there for years. She knew that I come here, I fill my buckets, I go home, I'm thirsty again. I come back, I fill my buckets, I go home, I'm thirsty again. Like this well, it might like deal with my thirst for a little bit, but I will always thirst again. But then to that he says, but I will give you living water and the one who drinks of the water I will give will never thirst now, what he's kind of describing here is something similar to what we have in our homes right now. When you're thirsty, when you need water, you don't need to go to some, like, town square where there's a well and pump the water and then bring it back. I mean, you might, you might need to do that if you live, like, on your way down to Hana and you're on catchment and it's been a drought. But, um, but most of us, we have running water that goes right into your house, You're sitting there on your couch and you suddenly realize that you're thirsty. You know what you need to do? You need to go to the tap and you need to fill your glass and you need to take a drink. That water comes to you. You don't need to go to this location or that location. There's no special secret spot that you have to go to get your water. The water gladly comes right where you're at. You can easily drink and that's sort of what Jesus is describing, but he's not talking about like water that comes to you. He says it here in, in verse 14, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So it's something that's inside your life that he's talking about a different thirst, a different source, a different supply. And how you don't need to go somewhere or have some experience in order to fill that supply. That it happens inside. Now here's the thing. Unfortunately, so many Christians never seem to learn that truth. They never realize that there's a place where the inner thirsting within them, that sense of restlessness and a desire for more than what they have, that it can be met instantly. That Jesus makes it clear. In fact, in chapter 7, we're going to find it. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We just need to turn our attention towards Jesus. We need to draw from him. And the beautiful thing is, you don't need to go here or there or anywhere because Jesus has come to you. He came to his own. His own did not receive him, but as many as would receive him. To them he gave the right, the power to be the sons of God. (laughs) So from that then, he says, okay, but go get your husband. He's not making fun of her here. He's not trying to shame her here. But if they're going to have a relationship It's got to be on the basis of honesty. It's got to be real. So he's giving her the chance to confess where it is that she actually is in life. Not to do like her Instagram confession where everything is absolutely manicured, it looks just spotless, it's faultless. That's me. And yet everything else is like a volcano of chaos you know? Hannah and I were talking about that here recently when um, we, we just, it's so amazing that like, you know, like I think honestly, like the best thing I have going for me in my life is my marriage. I love my wife. Like, I mean, Hannah is so precious to me, but it's amazing how we're getting excited. We're getting ready to go to church. It's amazing how often Even though we love each other, we love church, we love you guys, like we love studying God's word. It's amazing how on our way to church, it's so easy to fight. And then you get out of the car and you start walking towards people. You're like, we're fine. And inside we're like, oh, my goodness, raging inside. But you know what? Like there's something about honesty where we begin to really connect with one another. There's truth that's there. Go get your husband. She could say, well, he's busy right now. Well, uh," no, she comes right out and says, I don't have a husband. Now remember this, and what Jesus points out to her, you've had five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. In that culture, women could not initiate divorce. So if they were in a, a terrible situation, like there's nothing that they could have done. In that culture, the, it was only the man that could neg- um, initiate the divorce. So what that tells you about this woman is that at one point in her life, she was probably thinking that all of her dreams were about to come true love. You know what I mean? Like, man, people, when they're at the altar getting ready to get married, they're like, everything's perfect. I don't need any advice. I know everything, and all I need to know is that I'm in love. And it's like, "Woo!" She was thinking that everything was going to go great, and then whatever ended up happening, and she was given a writ of divorcement and she was put away rejected and then from that the emotional like roller coaster of trying to recover from that the disillusionment till finally she's at a place where now there's another man who has like taken interest and like I don't care where you've been like, I will, I will take you as my wife. And, oh, my goodness. And then all of that. And then all of a sudden, rejected. Put away. And again. And again. And again. Like, at what point do you go, like, what is wrong with me? Rejected. 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 Now she's at a place where this man, he won't even give her the dignity to marry the woman. He's just playing house like he's some kind of kid out in the yard. And I think, honestly, like, and let me just say, like, if your man won't marry you, like, get rid of that guy. Because you are worth more than someone just playing house with you and not having the guts to give you the dignity of a life of commitment. I'm telling you, like, all of the disgrace of being rejected by five men, being rejected by that last man who's just like, I just want everything good about you, but I will not give you myself. Like, I want to be able to flush you whenever I want and not even have to worry about writing out the bill. I'm telling you, playing house, there's no dignity in that. This woman is poor, she's lost, she's broken. She has this, like, she she has to go to this well outside of the city. And he's speaking to her. Like, I'm not really into numerology or anything, but I think it's interesting that she's had six men Who none of them actually saw her. And now here's Jesus, this seventh man in her life, that is actually seeking to save her and to heal her. And I don't know how long the chain of regret is for you, but like that chain will keep going until like you're finding yourself in Christ. Like, he's the only one that'll restore you. Everyone else will just consume you and reject you and leave you um, to just deal with the consequences by yourself. He's speaking to her. He's speaking to you as well. 3,000 years ago, David cried out in Psalm 142, Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. That word soul, that's speaking of like the innermost parts of who you are. It's not just the physical part of you. It's not talking about like, no one noticed my eyebrows. You know, like... they didn't, they didn't appreciate my shoes. Like, it's talking about you. Like, who cares if, like, no one ever notices your eyebrows, but yet they're like, I can see that you're hurting and I care about you. Like, how can, like, how can I reach you today? No one cares for my soul, and that might be true. There might not be a person on this planet who cares for you. To your employer, you might just be all they care is how many words a minute you can type, or whether or not you can punch in on the time clock on time. You can do the responsibilities to keep them making their money. like, you know, you might just be a cog in like their mechanism. That's all they care. But otherwise you might just feel all alone. But just know this that the Lord Jesus he cares. In fact, he cared so much that he willingly died for your sins on the cross as it says in Romans 5:8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. So from there in verse 19 down to verse 26, the woman said to him, "Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Since he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, she begins to engage in what seems to be a theological debate. Can can you settle something for me? Like, we say that we're supposed to worship here on Mount Gerizim. But you Jews, you say you worship in Jerusalem. Which one is it? Which is the right mountain to worship on? Which is the right place? You know, like, where's the well that you go to draw from? And yet we're already seeing that Jesus is talking about, like, this artesian well that flows from within. Do I go to that well, or do I go to the other well? Which is the well that I draw from? Remember, the Jews were mad because John the Baptist was calling people to an experience with God out in the Jordan, not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They were mad that Jesus and his disciples were doing the same. And now here she's saying, like, where do I, where do we worship? And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't even bother debating her on this. He just simply says, you know, I understand your debate, but I gotta tell you something. There's coming a time. In fact, the time's right, even right now. Geography doesn't matter. You don't worry about the where. It's one of the things like like Israel is a beautiful place to go visit. In fact, there's a handful of us that are going to have an opportunity to go here in the very near future. And what a blessing it is to kind of learn the geography, to see the places, to actually like be there where the Bible happened. It's amazing. But at the same time, we think of it as it's like the Holy Land. And yeah, okay, that's, that's true. But, but in a sense, you can have just as much of an experience with God right here in your seat than you can over there on, you know, the Temple Mount. Is that leaking? Or are you making popcorn? <laughs> there was popcorn being made earlier. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you can have just as much of an experience with God right here in your seat as you can over there in Jerusalem. Like, if you got baptized right out here at, um, down at, at, at Malawaka, your baptism means just as much as it would if you were going to get baptized in the Jordan. Because it's about getting right with God. It's not where it's happening. And that's her debate. Like, is this the place or is that the place? And he's like, look, it's not the place. It's the person. God's looking for true worshipers. that will worship in spirit and in truth. God is greater than geography, and he's showing her that right now. God is greater than race, and he's showing her that right now. God is greater than her class because her, as far as her social class, she would be very low. And he's showing her that right now. Religious tradition, he is showing her that God loves the Samaritan woman who has been rejected six times in a row now. That God is greater than all of that and what he wants is he wants worship that's based on truth. That's why he asks her, go get your husband. Because if you're going to have a real relationship, it's got to be on the foundation of truth. That you bring to God who you are, not the act that you can put on. He knows you. Confess. The lies that you tell yourself, don't tell those lies to God. God. The lies that you try to tell everyone around you, don't tell those to God. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. A relationship, a worship that is based on truth. Wholehearted commitment to him. You know, religious activity... That's not what God's looking for. Anybody can jump through the motions. but Worshiping from the heart. It has to be honest. Can't be a put on. It's not something that you do. You know, like, you know, I I can sing that song and and think about the news at the same time. Like, you know, there's an engaging of your heart. Mm -hmm. And I love it. It's spirit and in truth we kind of tend to gravitate one towards the other. We might have all kinds of truth in our worship, but we don't have any spirit. You rose from the grave. (laughs) Thank you for saving me. And yet if I'm like, it's Dan's birthday. Let's sing happy birthday. You're like, yeah, Daddy. It's not Dan's birthday right now, by the way. But if I tricked you, you would show way more spirit probably than sometimes in like, the, like, in like some deep worship times. Like, let the words register. There's got to be some spirit there. But you know what? There's also got to be truth. And we err on truth. We err on that side a lot within Christianity. Unfortunate. Remember a few years ago, a really, really popular song. People would they would cry singing it. There was like so many good things in the song, and then all of a sudden there's like this one line on the song that's like, that's not who God is. It starts singing things about like the love of God and how faithful He is to like hunt you down and find you, and then all of a sudden you would be like, and your love is like reckless. Wait a minute, like, no, God's love is like so calculated, like, He knew you before you were born. Before the foundations of the earth, Christ was dying for you. There has never been, like, there's never been a more calculated thing than saving your soul from hell. You know what I mean? Like, you think of the telemetry that's involved in, like, launching a spaceship to Mars. And all of the gravitational pulls and everything. And you're like, okay, that is precise, and it hits its target. But you think God's going like, to like shoot his love at you like it's some random firecracker? Like, no! And yet we get all emotional, like, yes, God, you are so careless and thoughtless and foolish. And I pray, no, that's not the God we worship. In the early church, one of the first heresies that ever like, took hold was called the Aryan Controversy. Denying the deity of Jesus. And Arius, he didn't write a theological handbook. He wrote a songbook, called it the Thalia. And in the Thalia there were all these songs, catchy tunes with false doctrine. And the the church continue continues to sing herself into heresy way before she'll teach herself there. So we worship in spirit, but we also we worship in truth. And God is seeking those that would worship him such. Anyway, that's a little side note. But I will say this, that worship, our worship is in line with God's own nature. And it's always on the basis of who God is. I like what Warren Wiersbe defines worship as. He says, it's the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, and body to what God is, says, and does. That God Himself is Spirit. And He has given us that opportunity to worship Him in Spirit. That we walk in the Spirit. That we pray in the Spirit. That God breathed into us the Spirit of life and we became a living being. The very capacity to worship God, who is Spirit, has been given to us by God so that we can worship Him. In, in that, um, we can have a relationship with him in that realm of spirit. Ah. And while this is being said, she slowly begins to remember wait, Messiah is coming one day. And she brings that up, and Jesus says, I who speak to you, I'm he. And from that, verse 27, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with the woman. And no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So, you know, if you ever had anybody like gossip about you, like, I wonder what he's doing over there talking to that person. Like, this, the disciples, the ones who wrote the New Testament, are like gossiping about Jesus. Like, Oh, did you see Jesus talking to that lady over there? I wonder what's going on. Yeah, she's going to hell, guys. She needs me. Like, I'm here to tell her about the hope of salvation. Oh, I, mean, I wonder, you know, like, nobody's asking him. They just talk among themselves. But anyway, I just think that's a little funny thing. It says, then the woman, or the woman left, then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the city and they came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I have food to eat which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then come the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. They're wondering why Jesus is is talking to this woman when they come to him. It's interesting how they're stuck in their prejudices. And stuck in their prejudices keep them from even, like, approaching Jesus to ask him. But Jesus, he's come to seek and save that which is lost. We're almost done here, but I'm going to tell you this little story about being, like, caught up in our prejudices. Uh, It might sound silly, but, but it's a thing. So... A Bunch of years ago, I was down in South Africa with friends of mine. We were helping to plant a church down there. A couple of years, like just a few years ago, we got to go down and visit a lot of those friends. The churches are still going. It's awesome. But while we were down there helping to plant this church, um, my, my friends that were all down there, um, we were in this little like juice slash sandwich shop in the heart of City Bowl in Cape Town. And while we're there in Cape Town, we're sitting there, we're sitting along the, the, the bench looking out the window at the busy city street, just kind of people watching. And everybody's kind of dressed all drab. and And all of a sudden, the whole length of the window, there's this woman, and she's like, she's dressed powerfully. You know, like you could tell, like, this woman is about to either go do some serious business, I mean, but... But everything about her, she was dressed in. Like, I remember, it's like this really like, pretty like, emerald green colored dress, like everything. But she was very beautiful as well. And as she was walking by, she didn't fit the, the cityscape. As she was walking by, like right in front of, her, of us, I tell my friend Brian, sitting next to me, I'm like, hey, go witness to her. <laughs> and he's like, no, man, I can't do that. I'm like, why? And he's like, she's too pretty. And I'm like, dude, Guys, why don't you guys go witness to her? Like, no way, she's too pretty. I, I don't trust myself. I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, and then we, as we were starting to talk about it, it's like, it's so funny because like, here we are like a bunch of Christian men and each one of us, we were all too afraid to go talk to her about Jesus because we all thought that she's too pretty and that we were worried about like what we would think. But then also we had a bunch of like, girls that were our friends that were Christians, and we we're like, would they go tell that woman about Jesus? And we're like, no, like, they'd be like, no, that woman's all dressed to, like, seduce men, and I don't want to have anything to do with that woman. And then there would be, like, this cattiness that I see sometimes among women. So, like, here's a bunch of Christian men that wouldn't share this to this woman, because they were afraid of themselves. And then I could imagine a bunch of Christian women that wouldn't share with this woman because they had their prejudices. Like, we all had our prejudices. And suddenly, we started laughing. we're like, maybe beautiful women are like an unreached people group. And then, like, we don't recommend that. Please don't think that. But I'm just saying, like, here's, like, a prejudice that kept this person. We weren't seeing her as a soul. We weren't seeing her as someone who was lost and needed to hear about Jesus. We were seeing her from wherever we were at and the things that we wouldn't let go of in order to actually care about somebody. Now, take that and move it out of that weird situation that you don't ever really hear about and move it into whatever it is. Like, we don't talk to those people because they are this way. We don't go into Happy Valley because it's way too local down there. Right, Justin? (laughs) because <laughs> I say that to Justin, because here he is, like, Howley guy living in the neighborhood, Happy Valley, and fits in great, you know? like. But you have your prejudice. When I first moved to the island, people said, oh, you got to be careful, Happy Valley. Happy Valley's great. I love those people. I live down Lower Way, who everybody's like, oh, it's so local down there. I loved it down there. But you know what? Like, you get warned, and then you make these prejudices, and then you, like, silence the gospel because you're afraid of... What you've already assumed that person is, and it's so sad. In first service, there's a we have a brother that comes to our church, Ram, and he's a godly man. He loves Jesus. I mean, he's coming to all our Bible studies, comes to our prayer meetings. Like, I, he loves talking about the Lord at the men's Bible study on Tuesday morning. He freely talks about the Scripture. He is he loves Jesus. And yet, if you were to not know Ram, you might be afraid of him because he has a tattoo of a spider on his face. I can't talk to that guy. He's got to be crazy. Like, see the tattoo? If you just said, hey, how you doing? He'd He'd be like, oh, what's up? And then you guys would have fellowship. But it's amazing how our prejudices will keep us from sharing with somebody. From that, Jesus called the attention of his disciples he said, hey, don't, don't be saying, like, there's four months and then the harvest. Look, fields are white for harvest. And he drew a parallel. Natural life, yeah, there's a four-month period between when you plant and when you harvest. But in the spiritual realm, we don't be thinking about things in time. You're dealing with the eternal God. Things that might take a long time can happen like that with the Lord. You might be hearing the Lord tugging on your heart today, and you might be thinking, like, well, I'm not ready yet. No. Like, as soon as the seed is planted, it can be ready for harvest when God's involved. If the Lord's tugging on your heart, don't put it off. Give your life to him today. But what's beautiful that's happening here is is he's saying, look, the field's They're white for harvest. When the fields were ripe for harvest, they would be a golden or the amber waves of grain. When a field got white, it meant that it was past ripe, that it was basically dying on the vine. The problem wasn't whether or not it would grow and sprout and fruit. The problem was that there was no one going out into that field and collecting the harvest. It was ready to rot. It had been sitting there for so long, being ignored for so long. And then now, now is the time. Guys, get out of there in the harvest. You've ignored them because you thought they weren't worthy of salvation. You've ignored them because they were Samaritans. You've ignored them for whatever it was. Get out into the harvest. Like Jesus said in Matthew 9, 36-38. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And now finally, in, in closing, we'll wrap it up here in verse 39 to 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know That this indeed is, indeed, the Christ, the Savior of the world. In closing, I want to tell you, like, like Jesus has changed my life. Like, I was hopeless. I was mad. I mean, I was just aimless. And I, like, and he rescued me. You wouldn't recognize me from what I was. Jesus has changed my life. And and I know that if he can change me, he can change you too. And like, you might believe that because I'm saying that, but you know what I would way rather you believe? I would way rather you believe it because he's changed your life too. Like, you can hear my testimony, but I want you to have your own. (laughs) I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know that that thirsting that's in your soul, you drink of whatever well is out there and you're going to thirst again. But as Jesus says in John 7, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then in the innermost being will gush those torrents of living water. Let that relationship be on the foundation of truth that you would worship him in spirit and in truth. But know this, that there's no barrier, no border that he won't cross to get you. Like he loves you.